Hello and welcome to The Edition. Each week we look at some of the most important and intriguing issues in the week's magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Nara Prendergast. This week, how free are we after Freedom Day? Plus, what's it like to live in Lebanon right now? And finally, is British gardening wilting or blooming? First up, in our Spectator cover story this week, our own Kate Andrews takes the government to task on Freedom Day and the measures being used to pressure those who haven't yet had their vaccine, including requiring nightclubs to check vaccination status come September. Kate joins me now along with Michael Kill, the CEO of the Nighttime Industries Association. Kate, can you start by telling me what your reaction was when you first heard that Boris Johnson was going to tell nightclubs to check vaccine status in September? Well, I felt like time must have moved very quickly over the course of a week because it wasn't that long ago, I mean, days before, that they had published guidance for business saying that they wanted venues that would be hosting a lot of people, strangers coming into contact with each other to come up with some kind of system, that they were going to help business to do so. And then sort of, you know, the, the bottom note was by the way, we do reserve the right to force you in the future. And then that came about very, very quickly. It turned out they have no intention of working with business or seeing what can be achieved voluntarily. They're just going to make business do it. And and there are very few details. I mean, we don't know what constitutes a mass event. We don't know which businesses they're talking about. Boris Johnson wouldn't even rule out vaccine passports for the pub. And I, you know, there's no good faith left because ministers told us in January and February that they weren't even considering this. Michael Gove said he didn't know anybody thinking about vaccine passports. Vaccine Minister Nadim Zawahi said they would be discriminatory. They wouldn't happen. Former Health Secretary Matt Hancock said we're not a paper carrying country. And here we are, they're mandating them. And the cynical point of view I know expressed by some Tory MPs is that this is just a ploy to get people to take up the vaccine. They don't actually intend to do it. But my goodness, we've moved very quickly. And I don't think we can even trust that this is cynical because everything they told us has turned out to not be the case. Michael, you represent the nighttime industries. What has been the nighttime industry's response to Boris's statement? I mean, predominantly, it's uh, 17 months closed an extra four weeks added on to the term and then we've had 17 hours of Freedom Day to uh, receive the bombshell from the Prime Minister. So as you can appreciate, uh, a lot of anger and frustration, more to the fact that nightclubs have been isolated in this and there has been a lot of pushback from the industry suggesting that proximity and contact similar to nightclubs are present in many other environments and that uh, marginalisation of that sector has, has been extremely frustrating, particularly as it's at the sharpest end of this pandemic and probably the hardest hit. It does seem, Kate, as though nightclubs are being used to sort of bring in this documentation, but, but can you imagine it being used elsewhere pretty soon? The problem is that I, I just don't know, but I can't trust anything that they say on this topic anymore because they haven't been honest throughout. You know, we did get reports, I think even last year, that some government money was going to create something that looked like a vaccine passport. They were funding private companies to come up with some systems, but the whole time insistent it wasn't happening. Here it is, as Michael says, they say for a week it's voluntary. Now we find out it's not. So who knows where where they'll stop? Um, You know, it is anybody's guess. And I guess that this speaks to the theme of the magazine this week, Laura, that it almost feels as if ministers are just as lost as the rest of us and they've forgotten that they are in fact in charge and get to make these decisions and with these emergency powers 
um, our lives are very much still in their control. I mean, we, we hit Freedom Day, but Freedom Day is not the end of the road. It feels like they're trading old restrictions for new ones. I don't want to overstate this. Is July better than February? Of course it is. It's better for every business, every person, the nightclub industry included. But it was just remarkable to see a prime minister who once would have just been delighted to see young people dancing and enjoying themselves um, at the nightclubs that he allowed them to go back to the night before, condemning the industry and the people who went as if they shouldn't be using the freedoms that were restored to them. Well, at the moment, you can go to a nightclub without a vaccine passport. Michael, can you tell us what it's been like this past week as people have started to return to clubs? Well, there's been a lot of excitement. I think people have voted with their feet. Bookings uh, and ticket sales have been exceptional. And, and I, I think the key thing to recognise here and, and, and just drawing back on where we are is we were actually quite excited to hear that the government were putting some responsibility on the venue in terms of uh, looking at their risk assessment and deciding based on the fact that they're quite individual premises and it's not a one size fits all that we were allowed to do that. And the other thing I think that's been important and definitely in the early days of this week and, and you can appreciate we're waiting for the weekend to come to really understand but um, much of the public have missed these environments massively and they are very clear that they accept and understand in in their majority that um, they have got some personal accountability and responsibility to ensure that they act appropriately within these environments. So I, I think there is a stronger collaboration now, given the fact that they've missed us, given the fact that we've missed them as customers, for us to collectively work together to a mutual goal, which is to ensure that we sustain the opening of many of these really important cultural and community businesses uh, moving forward. But the damaging piece is the government thinking that they can dangle nightclubs or social engagement uh, or, or cultural output over youth culture's head to say, if you do not do what we ask, then we are going to withdraw the access to this. And and that puts many of those nightclubs in a very vulnerable position. It's frustrated and angered people. And, and I think this is done without thought and it's very ill-informed and it really underlines the fact that our government do not understand our industry i mean you know some of the premises that we've talked about is if pubs and bars don't have to do it then there's going to be a competitive disadvantage for nightclubs 80 percent of commercial venues are walk-up trade that's going to be you know decimated and the other thing is that's brought up yesterday i mean i spoke to a promoter fifty thousand pounds in refunds have had to be handed out at post-September events because people don't want to have both of their sort of vaccinations. And the bigger issue that no one's talking about at the moment is there is a huge amount of staff in terms of security and different sort of ethnic backgrounds that work within our industry that categorically are adamant they're not going to do it. What are the government going to do about that? Because we're already at a shortage and we're going to be placed in a position where we're going to be drawn over the coals with HR issues, trying to force staff to take two vaccinations against their will. And and presumably that would also then mean you'd be turning away people perhaps from different racial groups from coming to your club, which presumably also is not a situation we want to be getting into. No, very much so. I mean, look, licensing very clearly highlights that we cannot be discriminatory. And what we're being presented with is guidelines um, from the government that are going to be mandatory, which lead us into that zone, something we never, ever want to be placed in. And it's it's wholeheartedly undemocratic. And um, the way this has been presented is only going to drive an industry underground. 
You know, you can't tell me that all of these people who have not been vaccinated and don't want to be vaccinated are not going to start, you know, staying at homes, having house parties, having, you know, and and what's better? I mean, it's counterproductive. We saw it on New Year's Eve last year when the the U-turn. We're now going to see it again come September moving forward, just on the edge of when freshers return to university. Students want to get back in and and engage with, you know, their colleagues, etc., we're going to see this huge uplift in house parties and events taking place all over the country. It is absolutely ludicrous, almost as bad as a 10pm curfew. Kate, finally, you, you end your piece on a rather sombre note. You say that ministers can't bring themselves to say it outright, but there's little intention to return to life as it once was. Are they just being incredibly duplicitous? I don't want to give them too much credit. I think they're uh, confused and I think they're nervous. <laughs> And they're spooked by the rising case numbers. And none of this should forgive the way that the situation's been handled because they are the ones who have designed the roadmap, designed the exit strategy. All of the data was pointing to an exit wave. Um, a cover piece from a few weeks ago for The Spectator by Professor Philip Thomas highlighted that the cases could go extremely high but thankfully vaccines work and that link between infection and hospitalization has been broken not completely but um, has really diminished your chance of going into hospital and it brings us back to that original premise of why we went into lockdowns and had restrictions in the first place if it was for nhs capacity look we need to keep an open mind things could change but right now that data is looking really good so why are nightclubs being targeted why are young people being targeted do i think people should take the vaccine absolutely i'm sure most of us can agree on that but do i want to move to a system where we start trying to force people using the heavy fist of the state to say well technically this is voluntary but we're going to take many cultural and societal elements of life away from you if you don't do it. I mean, we're not even debating this in Parliament. It's it's great that Michael's on the podcast and we're talking about it here. But, you know, with Parliament having to operate in that way it has for so long, we haven't even had a proper debate. So, yes, it, it does end on a somber tone, unfortunately. I, I hope everyone's been enjoying Freedom Week, but it's an important reminder that we're not out of the woods yet. Michael and Kate, thank you very much. Next up, Lebanon. It's on the brink of collapse, and Paul Wood writes about his experience living there for the magazine this week. He joins me now, along with Tala Ramadan, a local journalist and contributor to the New Arab and Beirut Today. Paul, in this week's issue, you start your piece with an anecdote about people trying to buy petrol in Lebanon, which, which should, of course, be quite a mundane task. But what, what made it noteworthy? Well, this was a queue that just went on and on and on. It was two miles, according to the clock on my car, uh, which was unusual in Lebanon, although the fact of a petrol queue, not unusual at all. And this is just one of the many ways in which when your currency starts to lose its value and the government starts to uh, to try to mitigate against that, uh, a lot of your normal life just get, gets turned upside down and you find people waiting in petrol queues all day or people having to go to work in their car all day on a laptop because they have to get petrol. The government's been printing money like mad here to solve a lot of problems of its own making, but is terrified of the implications of that. And has so put price controls on things like petrol. Uh, Of course, petrol still costs a certain amount in the real world. So at the same time, the government is having to subsidize petrol and it's in a vicious circle of printing more money to meet the cost of these subsidies. That means more inflation, uh, when I sat down to write this piece, I could buy 18,000 lira with a dollar. 
Then when the edition went to press, I had to hurriedly get the subs to change it to 19,000. The piece was held for a week. And then when it finally went in this week, it was 22,000. That is an almost palpable feeling of the ground shifting beneath your feet. And if you're an ordinary Lebanese, not a foreigner like me getting paid in dollars, your buying power is, is a tenth of what it was a year ago. And people are literally going hungry. The ones in the petrol queues are the lucky ones who can actually afford to buy the petrol that's at the petrol stations. Tyler, it's it's not just petrol as well that's become a nightmare. You, you recently wrote about the cost of basic foodstuffs. Um, you're speaking to us from Beirut right now. Can you tell us a bit about what life is like there for you at the moment? Uh, all right, so basically just by glancing at the reality on the ground where people are just getting into physical fights at supermarkets or they're just trying to find some subsidized goods or at least what's left of them. And, you know, just waiting in queues for hours or even days in the gas stations to just get their essential needs. Uh, a lot of people are just facing this existential crisis in Lebanon, especially that we don't have a current government uh, due to, you know, just politicians refusing to compromise on forming one. And uh, they're just never going to form one and to have this one step closer to paving the way to reforms and recovery and getting the IMF's uh, uh, trust. Uh, and this, you know, like especially like this one kind of dream that we had to uh, get a prime minister and have him form a cabinet, just this dream has, you know, it seems really far away now. So uh, things are getting even worse. And uh, just yesterday, there was a new study released by uh, the American University of Beirut, where they found that the average family of five now pays more than five times the minimum wage. Uh, to get their essential uh, needs met. And uh, this is just, you know, food commodities. We're not talking about anything that's uh, a luxury, supposedly. So uh, a lot of things have changed. Uh, food costs now more than 50% what it used to be uh, a year ago. And this is so much for a lot of people to actually handle. Well, you also write about the medical shortages and, and you talk about the gangs that are smuggling medicine out of Lebanon. Can you tell us a bit about that? There, there were a lot of American medicine shortages uh, lately and even like the most essential medicine that, you know, that are usually over the counter are not found anymore. And this has caused a lot of uh, issues with this dramatic turn and a kind of domino effect because a lot of people have very sensitive medicine that they need to have for their uh, diseases. And sometimes it's something that's really sensitive. So they really need to have something that's prescribed and very, like they can't have an alternative to that. So, uh, you know, with, with the issue with the economic crisis and the central bank not being able to uh, to subsidize these uh, medicines, and there are a lot of shortages in the banks, so they cannot really get these. So a lot of pharmacies are taking advantage of this, and they're just, you know, uh, smuggling these out of Lebanon just to get, you know, uh, more money, or even just try to sell them in black market, uh, which means that they will get a lot of money that's uh, extra. But here, I just want to make it clear that not all pharmacies are doing that. Actually, in parallel, a lot of pharmacies don't have medicine for real stored in their uh, stores, and thus a lot of people are just putting all their anger out there on pharmacists, which is really unfair because although we have a lot of people just trying to make use out of this uh, this advantage, a lot of people are really, really in reality living this uh, unfortunate situation. Paul, you made the point in your piece that uh, the Army Chief of Staff, General 
Joseph Aoun has been begging foreign governments for aid. What has been the international response so far? That shows how things uh, have really deteriorated. The army can't feed itself. It literally can't feed itself. There hasn't been meat in rations for a year. And it's asked and has got plain loads of aid from Oman, but also from countries like Egypt, which is a psychological blow to Lebanese who've always lived this high life from the richest almost to the poorest, based on what has been an an historically overvalued currency. For years, the currency was overvalued. It gave people the illusion that they were richer than they were. Uh, And this was popular with everybody. Uh, And now that things have started to collapse, there is political paralysis, political uh, cowardice, really. The caretaker government won't take the hard decisions that have to be taken. They want to leave it for the next government. But because of the sectarian division of power here, it goes back to the Taif Accords and the ending of the Lebanese civil war. They can't agree a new government. So the decisions that have to be taken are not being taken. And that's why, for instance, the medicines crisis that we were just hearing about is taking place. Politicians are terrified that if they stop the subsidies, they will literally end up on the end of a rope dangling from a lamppost in the centre of town. So they're using the very last of the foreign currency reserves and the very last of the gold reserves to subsidise medicines, food and other essentials for people paid in lira. But a lot of the Lebanese economy is people paid in dollars or people, not foreigners necessarily, but people getting dollars from abroad. So things like fuel and medicines are very cheap to those paid in dollars, not those paid in lira. And so you can buy, as I did for our children's nanny, Uh, cancer medications worth hundreds of thousands of dollars for tens of thousands of dollars. Of course, we had to search for weeks to find those cancer medications. And most pharmacies, as we were just hearing, are empty now. And the medicines that were um, bought by the Lebanese state with massive subsidies are turning up in markets in the Congo or being shipped out uh, to Syria and Iran uh, by criminal gangs allegedly linked to Hezbollah to to fund uh, the Syrian regime and the Iranian regime. This cannot go on, but because nobody will take the decisions that need to be taken, uh, it is going on until I think the country crumbles. At the end of P says that trouble in Lebanon has a way of quickly becoming sectarian. Are things kind of looking like they might be slightly descending into violence and possible civil war? Well, um, maybe my colleague in Beirut can answer that better than me. I'll just say that not yet, because people are sort of tired and exhausted. There have been demonstrations on the streets in which the army has has fired in the air or possibly fired rubber bullets. People have been burning tyres. Hezbollah has sent people out uh, in the south to break up angry demonstrations near petrol stations. It doesn't feel like a civil war yet, but I was talking, to, for instance, to my dentist, who's a Christian, who's desperate to get out, like any educated Christian, and a lot of them are leaving, who said that he was starting to see in his neighbourhood checkpoints springing up. People were starting to be wary, and he thought that eventually uh, those checkpoints would, would solidify into something more dangerous. Uh, and you know, this is a question that Lebanese are asking themselves, certainly. It's a question that I think you always have to ask yourself in Lebanon. And Tala, I, I'll put the same question to you. Are, are you nervous about, about things descending into sectarian violence? Um, I really think that because of uh, our you know, political system, it was established based on sectarian divide, which is really something that was problematic for a long time now. Um, however, I feel like this economic crisis, because it has be- taken its toll on a lot of people and many just want to, you know, uh, have their day, you know, feel safe and secure and just get the needs for their uh, children. So they don't really have this uh, in, the, in their background, at least. They don't have the sectarian hate. They just want to 
to feel safe. So basically, it's really more than just being uh, having like this uh, national insecurity. They just need to have something that that would have them secure food and necessities for their families. However, I really think that politicians are really trying to hold this sectarian narrative and bringing it back to the surface just to shift people's attention over the really uh, the real crisis on the ground. And a lot of people are actually so tired of the economic crisis and they, they really don't care about politics as in something that would divide them. But at this point, a lot of politicians are really trying to surface this narrative again, uh, trying to divide people again, and uh, many might fall for it, but I really feel that people themselves just are not in this uh, mood anymore. Paul, just to end on a, on a po- more positive note, if possible, is there anything that you've seen recently that's given you hope for the future of Lebanon? <laughs> uh, I, I'm speaking to you from a little village called Douma, which is uh, a Christian village on the central spine of mountains that runs up through to the centre of the country. It's quite a wealthy village, which I suppose hasn't been touched as other places have yet been touched by the depth of this crisis. I know you're looking for something optimistic. I I think Lebanon is ultimately ungovernable and that means very bad things uh, in all sorts of ways. But it's also quite self-sufficient. And up here in Douma, people are sort of withdrawing to the village. You know, they have their olive groves, they have their fruit trees. They're quite self-sufficient. I think the Lebanese are tough. I think one way or another, the country may not survive, the state may not survive, but the Lebanese people will survive. Paul and Tanner, thank you very much for joining us. And finally, gardening has for a long time been a romanticised part of British culture. And during the pandemic, sales of plants went through the roof when the lockdown decided to see if they had a green thumb. But in this week's issue, James Bartholomew isn't feeling so rosy. He's noticed that private gardens around him seem to be disappearing and being replaced with stone flooring and plastic lawns. James joins me now, along with keen gardener and writer Ursula Bucken. James, you open your piece in the magazine this week with the rather dramatic claim that gardening is dead, which I'm, I'm sure will alarm many listeners. How did you come to this diagnosis? Oh, just because of the ter- witnessing of the terrible changes that have taken place in the gardens around my home. I admit it's pretty anecdotal, but at the back of my house, I can see actually four gardens. One of them has been paved ever since I've been there. The other three used to be used to have grass, and now the last one this year has finally become a, a fake lawn. So it's plastic, plastic, and more plastic. So that's that's so that that, that put the cap on it. But there've been lots of other things going on before that. There had been there had been the uh, I thought the, actually the death rattle, as I call it, was when uh, somebody put hung ivy fake ivy which has actually gone slightly sort of wrong color turquoise it ought to be a marengo ivy but it isn't on top of a gate which is meant to open for their car to go on to a space which used to be their front garden and there's also a romantic garden nearby me that is now being the builders have taken over it was had lots of charm and romance and confusion of somebody being gardened for a long time it's gone there's a wall of, of sort of, it's meant to be box, I suppose, but it actually doesn't look like any leaf at all. It's just a sort of green carpet of plastic. And it's just happening again and again and again. And the stats bear it out. You know, the reduction in lawn sizes, the growth in hard surfaces in London, 63 Hyde Parks probably since 98 in London alone. So had all the decking around the country and it's a, it's a destruction of what used to be gardening. Ursula, is this something that you've noticed? 
Well, I, it, it, I think this is ridiculous hyperbole, actually, I have to say. But, uh, um, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, there, there have been some long-term trends which are dispiriting for the really keen gardener. But that doesn't mean to say that really keen gardeners have disappeared. I mean, I, I, I have a feeling that Kensington is not completely representative of the rest of the country. And in particular, uh, there will be people who have second homes which most of us don't. Uh, we live in one place all the time. And so uh, uh, that's probably why they put down plastic lawns, because they're not there all the time. Or they weren't bred in with the sort of extraordinary British culture for, for, for growing plants in a temperate climate. So, uh, I mean, this is a problem in all cities. Uh, and the other thing is the, the tyranny of the motor car. And if you're in a narrow street, uh, there's not room for your your SUV you have to you have to bung it on the on what would have been the front garden and these these are long-term trends uh, but I, I don't think that they presage the end of gardening I, I really don't. <laughs> James one of, one of the ideas you talk about is this idea that gardens have become outdoor rooms which does seem to be a sort of big business I mean newspaper supplements are jammed full of adverts for all kinds of garden furniture and other paraphernalia when when did that become a trend that we, oh, we think, think we should be living outdoors? I mean, let's not be hard on Alan Titchmarsh, but, you know, in the 1990s, was it, he had this thing called ground force and he would arrive in a garden and what was a mess would become much better. But it would you could be guaranteed it's going to have decking over a large part of it. I mean, it's been going on for a long time and it is not... I don't... I, I, I know you... It's. I may be slightly um, exaggerating, but it's. Um, it has reached a dramatic turn when, when, when you get 63 Hyde Parks all over London. That is a major, major trend. And I just think that women's lifestyles have changed so much that women used to do a lot of the gardening. More than half the gardening was done by women and they often were were women who were, lived in the home, who looked after their children, did not have jobs, and they did the gardening. And and they got a lot of reward out of it, I think. But, I mean, it's, it's fair enough. They, you know, they, want, they have jobs, they may have a choice, they may not have a choice, but their lifestyle, for good or ill, has changed. So they now don't have time for the garden. They do have time for the Pilates and the boxing and the, uh, and the, and the yoga, but they don't have time for the gardening. And why do men not have time for gardening? Because they are doing jobs. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, you may like or hate uh, the, the change that's taken place in British society, but we can all admit that it has taken place. We, more women now work, and as a result, there's nobody in the house, neither male nor female, who's got the time or energy. And actually, also, the culture has changed, because in the old days, they would have spent that time they had not going to the gym, not looking after their bodies, or indeed their minds, but looking after their gardens. And whether looking after your body and mind actively makes you happier than looking after your garden, I think is open to debate. Ursula, uh, do you accept that, that this is a, a problem caused by the feminism? I mean, there, there is a point there. Um, I, think, I think one thing one thing you do notice is that people take a lot of holidays. That's inimical to gardening. Anything where people don't stay in the same place all the time is inimical to gardening. But it, uh, in contrast to all of this, there has undoubtedly been a move towards gardening in the last 16, 18 months. I think a lot of people have found gardening is extremely recuperative. 
and when they've been working from home, they've they've discovered that they actually really quite enjoy growing herbs and vegetables and things. And young people particularly have taken to houseplant growing in substantial quantities. Now, James might not see the houseplants because obviously they're they're behind the uh, the lace curtains, but there is a real move toward, um, particularly in flats. And most young people can't afford gardens but they do have shelf space, so they grow houseplants. So the idea that people aren't, have, have, have lost that sort of connection with, with gardening, I'm, I'm, I'm really not sure that, 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 that it's true. It's changed, but I don't think the connection has been lost. And if you look at Instagrammers and, you know, in influencers, you know, they have, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers, these YouTubers, you know, young, young people growing fruit and veg and houseplants and, and uh, perennials and things. And, they, you know, they are very, very popular. So, you know, things are changing. But, but I, 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 I do think that the idea that gardening is, is dead, I think it's premature, really. I this is the country, Ursula which produced Capability Brown, produced Gertrude Jekyll, Russell Page, Major Lawrence Johnston, and in more recent times, people that I, you know, Penelope Hobhouse and Rosemary Veery. I mean, these, we were one of, if not the greatest gardening country, certainly one of the greatest gardening countries in the world. And now and we, and that, is, that is going. Are, the culture we is dying. Are, we, we still are. There, there are... There are a number of, of garden designers around that, that could hold their head high um, um, uh, with Penelope Hobhouse or Rosemary Vary or Russell Page, Tom Stewart-Smith, Dan Pearson, Christopher Bradley-Hull. Uh, there are also um, a number of those from ethnic minorities beginning to, to make real waves in the garden design world. So, you know, don't give up hope yet. I mean, the one, one problem is that we just haven't got the space we had that's because we've paved it over. Well, no, no, but it's also because we build houses, far too many houses per acre. And so in these great big building drives, people are left with, with very small areas, which they have to make into sort of living spaces. So you, you can't blame people for putting a bit of decking in their front, in their back garden, because they, you know, they need the space. I used to walk along uh, Sheffield Terrace, where I live, and compare, this is about 30 or 40 years ago, I used to do a, mentally decide which was the best garden because all of them were gardens. Now there's no competition. There's only one or two that you could call gardens because there's so many of them have covered over with marble with a bit of dying yew hedge at the front. It is a, is a miserable sight. Well, your little old ladies, your widows that love gardening, don't live in Sheffield Terrace anymore. I think that, I think that I think that may, that may be so. Um, and uh, but but I think if 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 you do ever come to the country, James, I don't know if you um, if you ever do, but you will discover that there are still a great many people who are really seriously interested in 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 their their. Garden. Well, it's a minority of the population lives in the country. I mean, we're talking you know if we're talking about big changes in the culture. This is a big change. Yes, but the people you're talking about in the past, like Capability Brown, they they were dealing with great big estates in the country. So was Russell Page. They they um, Russell Page made the odd uh, urban garden, but mostly they worked in the countryside because that's where the space was. Well, the best days of gardening were, took place when in history 
took place when rich people competed to make the best gardens. So you had that in China, in Suchow, you had it in, in Italy, in places like Villa Lanti. They were all competing with each other to make the best gardens. That just isn't happening here. I'm, well, I'm not so sure. I think, you know, the, the hedge funders are spending large amounts of money on country gardens. Yeah, but they don't uh, care just, about... You know, I mean, numerically, they aren't very uh, numerous, obviously, but uh, but they still are making an impact, and they're giving work to high-quality garden designers. So I, I wouldn't lose hope entirely, James. Uh, it's, gone. Really. it's gone. It's <laughs> gone. And just when, you think, you, when you think of the 3,500 private gardens that open every year for the National Garden Scheme... Just finally, James, I wanted to ask you about your garden. What's your garden like? Um, my garden is, I hope nobody visits it because it's a bit of a disappointment. I used to be very keen. I used to spend hours and hours there, but uh, then it's all rather faded off. And now I'm actually slightly coming back to it. I have, I have a plan to make a Victorian picturesque garden in the front garden with little curving paths and practically um, mostly plants. At the moment is a paved area, which I inherited, <laughs> but I'm going to unpave it and make it into a romantic Victorian garden. And Ursula, Ursula, what's your garden like? It's a very large country garden. We bought the house for the garden so that I could write about gardening. So I've got more than three acres, I'm afraid. Which uh, And it is gone. It is heavily gardened. One of a dying breed. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. And it's got a little woodland and it's got meadow, a little meadow and it's got a lot of borders and a lot of trees and a lot of shrubs. And I, I love it to bits and I spend all my time in it. But I'm sorry that I'm dying off. James, but uh, but funnily enough, I do have other friends who are also keen, keen as I am. <laughs> James and Ursula, thank you for joining us. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed what you've heard and want to know more about the stories we've touched on, do subscribe to the magazine for a more in-depth dive. And of course, please do leave us a review and a star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. I'm Laura Prendergast, and I hope you have a lovely weekend. <laughs>